All right, let's start in verse 24, and we're reading 24 to 30. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. God, the one who has given us the holy scriptures that we believe are inspired and errant, your truth and the way that leads to life and keeps us from sin. God, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we come to your word this morning in Mark. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we take a look at Mark 6, 24 through 30, I've entitled the message, A Crumb from the Table, A Story of Finding Faith in the Least Likely of Places. And as we come to this passage today, I want to make sure that we do something that's critical for your understanding of this passage, and that's connect this story with the story that we had last week, which was 7, 1 to 23, where we looked at uh, the accusation against Jesus' disciples of eating foods with unclean hands. And in that story, Mark is going to invite us to see something that Jesus did that completely turned the tables and how they understood what it looks like to relate to a holy God. And Jesus gives a new teaching with authority, and he says, it's not what is on the outside that defiles us. Jesus says, it is from the inside that evil thoughts and actions come from. It's the heart. And Jesus set the entire system of what was clean and unclean on its head. Mark follows that story with Jesus immediately going into what we know is a Gentile area or land. So Jesus is going to go from declaring, in a sense, all food is clean. Remember Mark's parentheses where he, he explains to us. When Jesus gave this teaching, Mark says, in doing this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It's in parentheses. It's a personal commentary that Jesus didn't say. But Mark is going to insert to make sure. Did you catch this? Reader, understand this. Jesus declared all foods clean. And immediately after that, Mark follows up with this story. And in another kind of turning the, the, the table over, Jesus is going to teach something different about what they believe regarding clean and unclean people. Who can come to Jesus? That's what this story is about. And so 
Jesus continues on his kind of unpredictable and unorthodox way of doing ministry, and he's going to take his 12 disciples into a completely Gentile area. If you have not realized this, this will make all of them unclean according to the old system. This is not where you went. This is not what you did, especially if you are a rabbi and especially if you have disciples that are seeking to follow after God according to the old system. And so Jesus is going to lead his 12 men, and we're going to come face-to-face with a woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. And she's going to come, and she's going to speak to Jesus. She's going to beg Jesus to heal her daughter. Now, what's interesting about this story, and you need to catch this as, as part of this introduction so you understand the rest. Jesus is going to respond and heal this lady's woman, but it's not the actual point of the story. It's almost said uh, in, in verse uh, 20, uh, 30. So she went home and found her daughter, her child, lying in the bed and a demon gone. There's a story about a miraculous healing, but it's not actually the point of Mark's story. So what is the point? We're going to see that Mark spends a lot of time on this interaction between this woman and Jesus. And there's things that Mark's going to want us to see in this passage. From a biblical perspective, Jesus is going to rewrite the story on who can come to Jesus. Now, from another perspective, and I want to address this, in our modern times, and maybe you immediately recognize this as we read this story, there has been accusations that Jesus was humiliating this woman. Why would Jesus use such harsh words? Isn't this the loving Jesus? And so one of the things, as we kind of go on a journey through this passage, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of outline our our time today, looking at two major things. First, we're going to to take a look uh, at some helpful context. There's two things I want us to see in the passage that will help us understand the passage better. That's what we're going to do in verse 24. Secondly, in verses 25 to 27, we need to understand Jesus and his words because... Is this about honoring a woman or humiliating a woman? Which is it? We have a a modern kind of scholarship who is putting forward this idea that in this case, Jesus clearly sinned. And there's a modern scholarship that is going with a modern philosophy of how we read the scriptures is that We can read the scriptures, but basically we are the judge and the jury. We decide what we will believe. We will decide whether we believe Jesus had his word or whether something else actually happened. And then there's a modern scholarship that is pushing back and saying, either this story didn't happen or Jesus sinned. And I want to address that head on as your shepherd. Thirdly, we're going to take a look at verses 28 and 30. We need to understand the responses. Because Jesus is going to respond to this woman, and she's going to respond to him. And this is the heart of the story. So, three things. We need to understand the context. We're looking at verse 24. We're going to talk about how we understand Jesus' words in verses 25 to 27. And then we're going to take a look at how we understand the responses. That's the journey we're going on to today. So first, let's come back to verse 24. And I want to talk about two things that set the table for this context. The first thing you need to know about Tyre was that it was a Gentile area. I mentioned this already. That's if you would pull the map. If you look at this map behind us, 
The green area, see, the center is the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus has mostly ministered around the Sea of Galilee. We have seen once already Jesus come uh, into contact with a Gentile. Remember the demoniac? Where Jesus, but Jesus was still around the Sea of Galilee. This is technically still a Jewish area, but it was a Jewish area heavily populated by Gentiles. So we've Jesus, we've seen Jesus come face to face once with a Gentile. And what did Jesus do? Jesus healed him. He cast out the demons. This was the man whose name was Legion. But for the first time in Jesus' entire ministry, he's going to venture outside of what we what we know to be kind of home base for the Jews. What would be considered uh, uh, ancient Israel, going from all the way to the south to the north. And Jesus is going to go to this area of Tyre. You see Tyre is a city all the way on the, the, uh, the coast. And it's often affiliated, you often hear Tyre and Sidon both together. These are two coastal cities. And these are two cities that would have been, if you go back to your Old Testament, Canaanite cities. So if I were to explain what was going on in the mind of Jesus' disciples, kind of in modern language, that we have a history in called so Josephus. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian who was not a believer. But we know most of what we know about the, the ancient times, especially regarding uh, Jew, uh, Jewish traditions, uh, Israel, Israel's history outside of scriptures from Josephus. Here's what Josephus says about Tyre. He says it's the most bitter enemy of the Jews. Jesus goes outside of the, his area of ministry, and he's going to take his 12. Now, we don't know if it says the vicinity. We don't know if he, uh, it seems like he didn't go straight to the actual city, but he went to this region. He's going to take his disciples out. So the first thing that you need to see is that Tyre was a Gentile city, and it was the most bitter enemy, according to Josephus, of the Jews. This is an unlikely place for Jesus to go. The second thing I want you to recognize or know about Tyre, how many of you have heard of Jezebel? Jezebel, yeah, we've got some hands. Some people are listening. There's, things are working. There we go. Uh, Jezebel, for the most part, is recognized as the most wicked woman in the scriptures. Jezebel is from this area. She's from the Phoenician area, not exactly from the city of Tyre. But you, know, you need to know, you, you, you probably have associations when you hear of hometowns of, of famous people that you know. What would have immediately come into the minds of the disciples is they know, one, this is a Gentile area, two, this is our most bitter enemy. This is Jezebel's stomping ground. Not, it's almost like when people hear about Jesus. He's a Nazareth? What good become a Nazareth? Through the disciples' mind, they have to be thinking, why in the world are we going to Tyre? What good can happen in Tyre? Now, the last piece of information, the important part I want you to see about Tyre, is you also need to know this. Not only was it Israel's most bitter enemy, the Jews' uh, most bitter enemy, not only was it the hometown of Jezebel, but there's a famous story from 1 Kings 17 about a Phoenician woman who petitions the prophet Elijah to save her son, and Elijah responds, and we have a miracle performed in a pagan Gentile area in the Old Testament, that is setting the stage for what God is wanting to do, not just through Israel, but we're giving a glimpse, kind of like a crack door in the Old Testament, to say, perhaps God's saving plan is bigger than just Israel. All right, so those are the first 
things I want you to do. And hopefully that would just plant the seed. There's a, there's a memory entire of God's willingness to work among pagan peoples. And that seed was planted from the Old Testament. The second thing I want us to see that's setting the stage for us understanding this passage is in verse 24 where it says that Jesus did not want anyone to know that he was in this area. Catch that and mark that closely. Jesus did not want anyone to know. Let me unpack that for us. The scriptures are clear. This is not one of Jesus' ministry trips. Jesus was not going there to preach and to teach. Jesus was going with his disciples. The scriptures don't make clear. It doesn't give us a reason. I can share possibly two that I think are biblical and, and, and not too far from us venturing into territory where we shouldn't try to, to uh, interpret scriptures where the scriptures don't go. But one thing is for sure. We know that Jesus had been constantly wanting to spend time with his disciples, and at every point, the crowds continue to press in and to want Jesus to be able to meet their needs and to heal. And we see again and again that Jesus desires to spend time with his disciples because he's investing and training them. And we also know that just as a, a reality, that Jesus was human and Jesus needed rest. And Jesus pulls away to rest and to spend time with his disciples, to invest in his disciples. And that's very clear from the fact that Jesus says he did not want anyone to know he was there. He was not there for public ministry. Jesus was there to be with his disciples. But I love how the passage tells us and basically makes very, very clear that it says, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Try as he might, even in this area of Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, who were, would not be thought to be looking for Jesus, he's found. All right. So I want you to see those two things. And, I, and maybe, maybe just unpacking that a little bit further. Um, if you know anything about those who have, have uh, become famous in our day and age, then you know that they have basically uh, given up their private life. Uh, one of the things that happens with people who are famous when they go out, let's say, for example, they want to share a special birthday dinner with their child. And so they take their wife and their children and they go to a public restaurant. One of the things that happens again and again by well-meaning people is, I don't, I, I, would you, can I just get a picture? I've been a big fan. I followed you. Can I, can I get a selfie or can I just get an autograph or can I just get... Time after time, person after person who means well and just wants to say, hey, I'm a huge fan, I love you. But it means that that person who's famous actually has no like real kind of conversation. Uh, if, if you have children, and I don't say this in a demeaning way, but then you recognize when you are wanting to have conversations, there are uh, many little voices who are asking questions of mom and dad. And if you have uh, gotten together with your family and another family and you have kids and you recognize this is kind of just a free-for-all. We're just going to enjoy time. But one thing we're not going to have is, is really intentional straight line talk where everything makes sense. Uh, you're going to have several stops and starts. And I want you to see that this is often what Jesus was dealing with, is that no matter where he went, well-meaning people who uh, recognized and knew that Jesus could heal them or their family member, 
are constantly coming and invading the privacy of Jesus and his disciples, which meant it was very hard for Jesus to just continue on in a conversation in a straight line of what he was doing. If we understand that, then we understand more uh, more fully the context of what's taking place when this woman begins to come to Jesus and beg and beg and beg Jesus to respond to her. So those two things. You need to understand tired of where we're at. You need to understand Jesus' plan at this point in time. He's, he's uh, less than a year away from laying down his life on the cross. He's in the last year of training his disciples. He has come out of an unbelievably season or busy season. Remember, it wasn't only just the feeding of the 5,000. Remember when we go after that, it says Jesus went to cities and villages, and everywhere he went, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. And we could think hundreds, thousands, where Jesus' ministry each day, every day, is meeting the needs of the people. And guess what Jesus did? He gladly and joyfully met those needs. We saw that with the feeding of the 5,000, right? Is that Jesus had compassion. And so Jesus' compassion is constantly meeting needs. But now he's saying, I need to pull away because not only do I need to preach to the crowds, I need to be with my 12. I need to be with my men. I need to invest my life in order to reproduce. So that is the first thing we need to see. I want to move on to verses 25 and 28 because we're going to take a second look. So we've understood the context. Now we need to come to this kind of thorny issue that as a shepherd and as a, uh, someone who's been entrusted with teaching and preaching the scripture to you, we need to meet head on. Because there's a growing narrative in not only even the evangelical world of, of people who call themselves Christians and scholars who call themselves Christians of a growing kind of a groundswell who are beginning to stand up and deny the teachings that the church has historically believed to be true. I won't go any further than that, but I know that you know and understand we live in an age where we're getting more and more pushback onto is God's word true? Is it true in every way? And in what ways is it not true? What ways can, can I, I take an opinion? I know it says this, but I think there's some gray area, and I'm believing something else. I want to address something about Jesus head on. So let's try to understand Jesus' words. And I want to read them again to refresh us of what was said. And it says in verse 25, In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus says this, First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, I want to bring in a parallel account from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. I want to read the account in Matthew. Because Matthew is going to give us some information that Mark does not. And so this is one of the... The stories, when we look at the four Gospels, not all four Gospels have every single story uh, the same. They're not all four identical. But we often see a lot of similarities in Mark and Matthew and oftentimes Luke. And they will get the same story and they will provide various details that one account does not. And there's going to be some details that are important for you to understand this passage. So let's read Matthew. If you have your Bible, it's Matthew 15. We're going to read 21 to 28. We're going to see the same exact story, 
And we're going to see a few more details that are helpful to understanding Jesus' words. What is this conversation? Is Jesus humiliating this woman? Or is he wanting to draw out faith and honor her? Reading in verse 21, it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, and this is a new detail, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. This is another new detail. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Verse 24, missing from Mark. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Verse 27, yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith and your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So just a few observations that Matthew really helps us uh, understand so we understand this passage more fully. The first, did you see in verse 22 how she immediately identifies Jesus not as just a random healer from Israel, but as Lord, Son of David? Do you see that she recognizes his identity not just as a healer, not just as Jesus the prophet, but she connects something that we see from the Old Testament. Remember, going back to our context, there was a miracle that took place in this area of a woman who believed and Elijah healed her son. We don't know how much, we don't know what seeds of faith, but here's one thing I know. God allows faith to, to spring up in surprising places that we would never guess. And here's what I can say is this woman had good theology. Because to acknowledge Jesus as the son of David, to be the son of David means that, that the expected one who would be born to David's line, what we often call the Messiah, is at least in her vocabulary. And so she comes to him, Lord, son of David, and notice what immediately she does. Notice the posture that she takes. She pleads for mercy. Mercy. She comes and she pleads for mercy, identifying Jesus as the son of David. Now, I want us to see in verse 23, and this is really important, that Jesus did not answer a word. Now, before you think that's mean, remember our previous context, that Jesus did not come for public ministry at this point. And Jesus focuses on his disciples. And we're not clear, what was, what was the area like? Were, were they in a home uh, was there kind of access? Were they in a courtyard where she could kind of see that Jesus was meeting the disciples and she's on the outside? We know Jesus is clearly not in the public forum. Uh, was she somebody that happened to know the, the owner of the house where he's taking residence? And she gets in. And, the, and, and Jesus' and disciples are like, I don't know who she is. She's not the servant. She's not the owner. She's just here with us. We don't know the context. But here's what I know is that she is trying to get Jesus' attention, and Jesus is not responding a word. Jesus 
focus is fully on investing in his disciples at this point in time. Now, and you say, well, why wouldn't he heal? Do you know the minute that Jesus heals this woman's son? Do you know that every miracle, that even when Jesus says, don't tell anyone, goes out like wildfire? That as soon as Jesus says, okay, my focus and my priority is investing in my disciples, but I will heal, that the minute he does that, they will be a line in a crowd of everyone bringing the sick and those who need to be ministered and want to talk with Jesus to Jesus' door. And this is the constant tension of Jesus, of how do I meet the crowd's needs, which will never end, and how do I raise up 12 men to be my disciples who will reproduce themselves in others? Just in thinking about, once again, to unpack that a little bit further. If you think about this, have you been a part of a small group and the question is asked and there's that weird silence that takes place? And you know, and if you've taught in small groups or even if, if you've, uh, for instance, this also happens with coaching. And if they teach you for coaching, don't interject. Wait for them to answer. There is power in silence because it pushes people to either continue on and, and maybe take that maybe next step of vulnerability. This happens in groups. We actually know the dynamic is that when you don't answer it for the people, then they have to take the next step and continue making themselves more vulnerable. And the things that you get when, when you provide silence are fascinating. And so if we were to look just a little bit further, I think there's two more reasons. Not just that Jesus wanted, uh, didn't want to perform public ministry. And being silent, he forced this woman to take the next step of being vulnerable with him. The second thing he does is he forces his disciples to step in and he once again reveals their hearts. Because what was their answer? Send this woman away. She's driving us nuts. She won't stop. She's begging and begging and begging. And there here's Jesus, not even answering. And so the disciples interject. So Jesus' silence is going to invite a response by the woman. It's going to invite a response by the disciples. The disciples are done with it. Jesus is not. And he's going to invite her to make that next step of being vulnerable with him. Now, notice how Jesus answers her in the Matthew account. Because Mark doesn't give us this context. He goes straight to the saying about uh, the crumbs and the table and the dogs. But Mark tells us something that is really important. And Mark shows, or excuse me, Matthew shows us that Jesus first just talks about his mission. And he says to her, here's a woman that's called him son of David, Lord son of David. He says to her, do you not know that I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel? Jesus' priority is the people of Israel. It's going to be for those who come behind Jesus, especially Paul, to really begin to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But Jesus states this. In fact, Romans 1.16 confirms this. This is talking about Paul. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. But he says what? For the Jew first and also to the Gentile. 
Now, before you think this is unfair, the reality is that Jesus is not dealing with equal access. When we talk about grace and mercy, grace and mercy are not about fairness and equal access. Grace and mercy is how God desires to dispense them. And as God desires to dispense them, he chose to reveal himself first to Israel. And that is Jesus' priority. He is going to reveal himself, and that's what he tells this woman. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But here's what we know. We know that Jesus didn't turn away a Gentile. We know that he healed Legion. But Jesus is kind of testing her. He's baiting her. When yeah, Over and over again, Jesus recognizes what's in a person's heart. Remember when Jesus, uh, there's, there's the lame man lowered to the roof. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he says, I know what's in your heart. I know what you want to ask. I know that when I said I will forgive this man his sins, you thought it was blasphemy. And you thought, if you can really forgive sins, make them walk. And Jesus says, so that you will believe, so that you know, take up your mat and walk. There's example after example where Jesus looks at a situation and he understands the hearts of those who are in front of him. And I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is looking at this woman and he is discerning and knowing. Here's a woman who called him Lord, son of David. Here's a woman who calls and asks for mercy. Here's a woman who's, who is pleading and saying, I know what's going on with my daughter is not right and I believe it's an evil spirit and I want you to cast it out. I need your healing. And so I believe that Jesus is looking at this woman and recognizing her face and he states something that is true. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And now, now notice in Matthew, before we return to Mark, here's the woman's response. How would you respond to that? She kneels at his feet and she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. So these verses that we've looked at Matthew are critical in understanding Mark. If we're going to really understand the fuller story and you're going to understand what was actually taking place, what was God up to in this story, Matthew is going to really speak in to help us understand this passage. Now, so I've clarified a few things that Matthew did. Now we need to kind of grab the bull by the horns and let's talk about Jesus saying, first, let the children eat all they want. This is verse 27. We're back in Mark. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, Two things. Do you notice there in verse 27 how Jesus leads the sentence? He says, first, first. The very implication is that Jesus is planting a seed of hope. He's not saying only. He says, first, first, let the children eat all they want. Then he says, allow the dogs to eat. Now, one of the things that you probably wouldn't see as you're reading your English version or whatever language you're reading in is how Jesus takes a common metaphor. Now, so if you've read the scriptures, you know that oftentimes a dog is a derogatory term used of Gentiles. Derogatory, 100%. The reason the Gentiles are often called dogs is because the, the, the type of dog that they're talking about is the type of dog, if, if you have been into countries where in a sense, wild dogs run the streets and scavenge off of anything and everything that they could find. This is the type of dog that is often referred to and the type of dog when the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs, they were specifically meaning. 
They, the reason uh, for this association, you think, well, that's just derogatory. In the Jews' mind, the fact that they served one and only one God and were called to purity before the, that, that God, the fact that scoundrel dogs went and ate anything and everything to them provided a picture of the type of people who had many, many gods who would serve and, and uh, in, in a sense, pro, uh, prostitute themselves, like Israel had done, to worshiping many, many gods, thinking that if I pray to this god, if I worship that god, if I offer incense to this god, if I do these things, then I can make these gods happy and they will give me what I want and what I'm praying for. So the primary difference between a Jew who's supposed to worship one God and the Gentiles who worship many was this idea of uh, one God versus the multiple. And so in a derogatory way, they would often refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Here's what you need to know. That is not the word that's used here. The derogatory term that is often used in the scriptures is not what Jesus says here. Jesus knew and understands the situation, and he uses a metaphor to help people understand not a, this is not name calling, this is not Jesus calling the woman and her daughter a dog, this is Jesus showing the proper order of things. Let me unpack the metaphor. The word used here is the diminutive form of little dog, not at all the same kind of scoundrel dog. This is the kind of dog in the Greek home that would be a house pet, a dog that was living with you and not a typical dog on the streets. And you think, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I'm not really concerned whether you buy what I'm preaching. I am concerned about teaching the text as it is. And the text as it is says this is a diminutive little dog. And the example Jesus gives, and I think you probably know this, at our home, when we eat, whenever we eat, we have a little dog that comes under the table because he knows that when we eat, he might get food. And I have made the mistake, although we declared at one point in time, and we, were, we stuck to this, I mean, to the letter, for like two days. This dog eats only dog food. He doesn't get people food. Because if he gets people food, he'll never want his dog food. I'm sad to say that prophecy is proven true. At our home, we have a dog who wants people food. And what Jesus is saying here is there's a right order to things. Notice what he says in, in this verse. Jesus says, let the children eat all they want. The family gets fed first. By the way, these are not times of plenty. These aren't times where you just go and, and grab in the cabinet anything you want. When you made the food, the food was for the people. The children should be nourished first. And then Jesus says, and it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to those pets. So Jesus is giving an illustration of what is the proper priorities in life? What is the proper order? The children eat first. If you have something left, then it can be given to the dogs. And so what Jesus is talking about is very specifically, Jesus is not speaking negatively or derogatory, uh, in a derogatory way, calling this woman a dog, like often is the case with Jews calling Gentiles dogs. That, that was 
prejudiced, that was biased, and they did that purposely to hurt. Now, I told you the biblical reasons why. The biblical reasons why is they, they saw the Gentiles as dirty, as scoundrels, as eating everything they could, just like those dogs. They worshipped as many gods as they could. That context is true, irrefutable. And so is it irrefutable that Jesus, in this passage, does not use that term. He talks about the house dog, the little dog, the diminutive sense. And Jesus says, here's the right order. You feed your family, and then the dog can eat. Now, what is important for me to stress here as your shepherd, is that the reason this is so important and the reason I would, I would take the time to unpack this, you think, Sam, little dog, big dog, explaining all this, here's why it matters. We live in a world where you have access to as many resources on the internet, on YouTube, on, uh, on podcasts. You, you can open your computer and get any kind of commentary that you want in this passage. And some of the commentary you will get is commentary that will say that Jesus was wrong in this instance. Let me just push back against that. Because if Jesus was wrong in this instance, he wasn't sinless. If Jesus wasn't sinless, he wasn't God. If he wasn't God, you don't have a savior. I want to defend this and other passages like it because the reality is I believe that God's word is, is the word of God given to us that gives life. It is not error. It is not to be up to us to judge. This is not a story that we can set aside and say, I believe Jesus and he's my savior. I don't believe in this story. And if you get on that slippery slope, how many stories will you not believe? Here's what I can tell you. Some Christians and some pastors who call themselves Christians are preaching this text in a way that would say, I don't believe this is either what Jesus said, so the Bible is not inerrant, or I don't believe that Jesus was right and he was not sinless. That's fine. But here's what I can tell you. If profession be Christians, they're looking for Jesus to save, they have excluded themselves from any kind of salvation because salvation comes from a perfect sacrifice who laid his life down for sins. So why do I go down that rabbit hole? Because it's unbelievably important. And as your shepherd, I want you to know, we believe in the scriptures. We believe they are inerrant. We believe they teach the word of God. And when we start to doubt, and we let doubts creep in, and we, and we listen to preachers on the internet or on podcasts that can so easily be accessed, and you have no understanding whether this person believes the word of God as we do, let me be clear that we believe in God's word as it is inerrant given to us. Let's move on to the third point. I want us to understand the responses. How did Jesus respond to this woman and how did she respond to him? Let's read verses 28 to 30. After Jesus talks about this and uses this metaphor of feeding the children first, letting them have their fill before the dogs are fed, the lady says, Lord, she replied, even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In verse 29, and by the way, if you're looking, where, where is the focus of Mark's story? It's in verse 29. This is why he told the story. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left you. I told you at the beginning of the introduction. This is an interesting story. It's a story about a miracle, 
of a demon that is cast out, but it's not the focus. The focus is this interaction with this woman and how Jesus sees that she has this amazing hope, a persistent hope, that she will not stop asking him to heal and have mercy. In verse 30, we have the conclusion that says, She went home and found her child lying on the bed and being gone. So let's look at the woman's response. I want you to see two things. I want you to see humility, and I want you to see hope. In Matthew's account, in verse 27, it says, so this is not Mark, looking at Matthew. She begins with, yes, it is, Lord. She confirms, she affirms, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall under their master's table. I'm amazed that this woman's argue, or that she, this woman's response, she doesn't argue, she doesn't complain. All we find in her mouth is a yes. I don't know if you have ever been in a conversation with somebody, but if you've ever been in a kind of conversation where you can never get the last word, where they always need to say something else, they, they, they have to say something that shows that they disagree. They have to say something that shows that, okay, I know what you said, but I don't, I don't that's not me. I, I'm not there. Here's what we find from this woman. No argument, no complaint. She just simply says, yes. Then she has a little extra hope that she adds. And Jesus opened this door. Remember when he said, first, let's feed the dogs? Jesus leaves her a little line to see if she will catch it and take a step through that door. And this is the hope that she sees. She says, yes, but then she says, even the dogs. She is so persistent in her hope. It's like Jesus saying, in a sense, uh, this is not perfectly true, but it's almost like Jesus saying, hey, 99.9% of my time, is I'm called to shepherd Israel. My priority is not anything other than feeding the sheep of Israel. And here's the woman's response. So you're saying 0.01% is free and open. You're saying there's 0.01% chance. Now, those, that is not in the scriptures, but it, it is, in a sense, you read this. She says, yes, but God, even the small dogs can get the crumbs. She hears Jesus' response that he came to, for the sheep of Israel. That's his priority. And she still sees hope. And I love that about this woman. I love her humility, and I love her hope. Now let's look at Jesus' response. Because this woman honors God by saying yes to his plans. She says, yes, I understand the Jews come first. But if you're saying that some of the crumbs can fall, then I want to believe. Here's Jesus' response. Jesus' response is to honor this woman and to say yes to her hope in him. Jesus' desire is not to humiliate this woman. Jesus' desire is to draw out her faith and give her honor for such an amazing hope in him. You know, this is the only recorded instance. Usually we see Jesus arguing with, or the the Pharisees arguing with Jesus. This is the only recorded instance where somebody speaks back, and and, and this is not back-talking, so don't read that in. But she is going back and forth to Jesus, and she has so much hope that when even Jesus says, I came for the sheep of Israel— First feed the children, she says, but even the dogs get a crumb. This is the only time we have recorded that Jesus responds to somebody like this. That Jesus responds to her great faith, her hope in him. And so we see Jesus, how do we see Jesus honoring? Look at his words where he says, for such a reply, 
Jesus desired in front of his disciples to publicly honor this woman and the way she responded to him. And she was rewarded. Her faith was rewarded. Her hope in Jesus was rewarded. Her persistence was rewarded. It reminds me of of two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Do you remember when Jacob was wrestling with the angel and he wouldn't let go of the angel until the angel blessed him? And how God honored Jacob by blessing him? Do you remember when Jesus tells people how to pray? Remember that persistent widow who goes to her neighbor to ask for bread and won't stop knocking until they open the door? And Jesus says, pray like that. Pray like that. He says, if a neighbor who doesn't even want to open their door at midnight because they know their neighbor is knocking, eventually opens the door, he says, how much more am I honored? How much more am I pleased when somebody comes knocking on my door like that? This woman, I see Jacob and I see this persistent widow who knocks and knocks and knocks and will not be denied. So let me just end with three applications this morning. As we take a look at the story, and we see that there certainly is the reality that crumbs from the table are being given and offered to not only just the children, but the family dog. Once again, this metaphor is not comparing the Jews to children and the the Gentiles to dogs. This metaphor is saying, what is the proper place? And we're going to find faith in the least likely of places in this woman of Tyre. By the way, everything was stacked against her. She's in Tyre, a pagan place. She's a woman. By the way, women did not approach men. This was not okay. This was not publicly acceptable. Uh, and it was not acceptable by Jesus' own disciples. Uh, you, have you ever been in a room or, or looked, read somebody's face and you recognize they don't want me here? Do you think this woman in any way looked at 12 disciples and them saying, let her go, make her leave? You, do you think that she saw a warm reception? So here's a woman from Tyre. She's a Gentile, and she's also a woman. And then she's walking to a context where she's not wanted. And she has such indomitable hope that she won't give up. So the first application is this. What this story does, even though Jesus is called to the sheep of Israel, it tells us everyone is welcome at the table. At the table, not just the crumbs, the dogs. Everyone is welcome at the table. One of the things that Jesus' ministry begins to see and opens the door that his disciples will walk through is Jesus' plan of salvation was not just for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles. They were to come and eat at the table. Their place was not to eat the crumbs. They were given a spot at the table. And Mark wants us to see this and know this. Just as Jesus in the last passage overturned the laws of what is clean and unclean in regard to food, Jesus is now going to completely overturn this idea of who is clean enough to come to him. And in the disciples' minds, it certainly was not this woman. The second thing that we see is we see a picture of true hope that honors God. Look at this picture. This woman approaches Jesus, confessing his identity, calling him Lord, Son of David. She asks for mercy. She asks for help. She persists in her request. She humbly accepts God's plan and says, God, I know that in mercy and grace, I can't make demands. You give them as you see fit. 
But she is bold enough to believe that even though she was not a Jew and she recognized and willingly submitted to God's plans, she would not let go of the hope that some of those crumbs might just fall to the floor, that she and her daughter might eat from the table. And the beautiful picture that we have is something that is far greater. She is not just invited to crumbs from the floor. What is going to be made very clear with Jesus' disciples, and specifically Paul, is that they're invited to the table. Here's a picture of true hope. Lastly, and I always want to say this, in God's sovereignty, there's no inconveniences. I promise you, you have come across somebody that is an inconvenience in ministry, in life, who's a distraction from what you want to get done. And the beautiful thing that Jesus teaches us is he responds to the inconvenience. Jesus went to get away, and he wanted to be secret, and he wanted to minister to disciples. But even with those plans, how beautiful that Jesus sets aside what he wanted to do, takes time to dialogue with this woman, invites her to and opens a door of hope, and then allows her to walk in and express her true faith. There's no inconveniences in God's sovereignty. And let me just invite you, as you go through this week or as you go through life, you will run into this woman. We all have. And on our better days, we stop, we make eye contact, and we talk to her. We meet her needs. And on our worst days, we follow the advice of the disciples. And we say, just get, get rid of her. We've got things to do. We've got to go on. How beautiful when we stop to be inconvenienced by little people in unsuspecting places who have no right to make claims on us or our time, we think, but are objects that God wants us to pour out his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we thank you that each week we have this opportunity to learn new from your word of your character, to learn of your love, to learn of your great mercy and grace that is not just poured out on us, but is poured out on the nations. God, we have a blindness just like Jesus' disciples who didn't see somebody who was fit to receive mercy. I'm sure there are people in our lives that are inconvenient, that seem so far beyond being interested in spiritual things, but God, you love them. God, thank you for this picture of a faith, of a hope that honors you, who identifies you correctly, who knows and, and asks that, God, I'm not deserving of anything, but I ask for your mercy, who pleads for your help, who's persistent and knocking, even when it's uncomfortable. God, what a picture of God-glorifying hope. God, what a picture of a parent who loves her child so much that she's willing to be embarrassed. She's willing to be uncomfortable. She's willing to do anything that she can, humanly speaking, to see that her child is healed. God, give us a love for our families. Give us a love for one another in that way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.